Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. Welcome back to Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. My name is Daniel Rogers, and I am your reluctant host. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad that you are able to join me today. Uh, it's just such a blessing to be able to do this podcast. I appreciate the notes and the messages I get from some of you, and uh, they just let me know that all of this work and effort I put into this thing is worth it. And so just thank you for that. I'm glad that you're getting something out of it. Today we're going to be talking about the afterlife. And so the title of the episode is going to be called, What About? Now, as you know, you clicked on this. You know the title's not actually What About? But it might as well, it might as well be What About? Because that's what happens anytime you talk about the afterlife with anybody that disagrees with you <laughs> or that agrees with you. So here, here's basically how it happens. Guy number one, uh, he believes in eternal conscious torment. And so he says, well, you know, Matthew 25 says that the uh, sheep, they'll go into the Father's kingdom, but the goats, they're going to go into everlasting fire. And then he sings a song. I don't want to be a goat. Nope. I just want to be a sheep. Bah. Right? And then he's like, boom, there you go. That's what the afterlife's all about. But then... The uh, second guy, the annihilationist, or the conditional immortality guy, we'll call him Edward. Edward is like, well, hold on a second there, bub. In the uh, book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, there's a, there's a bush that's burning. And even though it's burning, it's never consumed. However, when the wicked are talked about in the New Testament, it always says they're going to be consumed, like in Matthew chapter 3. So this is a fire that consumes. And then the universalist, uh, we'll call him George, over on the right side, he's like, well, hang on a second now. <laughs> you say the wicked are consumed, how can that be? Because in Revelation 21, the scripture says that the gates will never be shut. And that these people outside of the gates, the dogs, the sorcerers, the liars, whatever, in chapter Revelation 22, he gives them an open invitation to have their robes washed and come into the city. So how could they be burned up? That doesn't make any sense. And then... The first guy is like, well, hold on. Hold on a minute. He says, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? You know, in Jude, it says that they're burning forever and ever. Same with the angels. <laughs> An unquenchable fire. And then the conditional mortality guy is like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about Matthew 10? Because Matthew 10 says, do not fear him who's able to destroy the body but cannot uh, destroy the soul. Yet, fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So what do you think? You know, what do you think about that? And then the universalist guy he comes back and he's like, "Well, hold on a second here. Hold on a second here. Don't you know? Don't you know that Romans chapter five said that by one man's sin many were made sinners, but by one man's righteousness many will be made righteous." Of course, the uh, eternal conscious torment guy comes back and he's like, "Well, wait a minute now. Can't do that because God's." presence cannot tolerate sin and so it's going to be punished forever and ever and ever because we have an eternal soul and then the conditional immortality is like well hold on who told you about an eternal soul Etern eternal uh, immortality only belongs to Christ as Paul told Timothy in 1st Timothy then the universalist <laughs> you see what I'm saying <laughs> you just have as many passages as you can come up with to try to defend eternal conscious torment, you can find same passages, another list of passages, to talk about conditional immortality. And as many passages you can come up with to talk about conditional immortality, like the one from 1 Timothy 5 I just referenced, the universalist will come back and will say, well, actually, you know, that's a good point. In Christ, yeah, in Christ, there is immortality. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all die, every single one of us die in Adam, but in Christ all should be made alive. So, yeah, God's going to work that out. And so it's just a never-ending loop of, of fighting, a never-ending loop of whatabouts. So what do we do with this? First off, can we just admit that the Bible is complicated? Can we just admit that there's some tension here between these passages? On one hand, you have all Israel being saved in Romans chapter 11, but on the other hand, Jesus says in Matthew 8 that the children of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Can we just admit that this is a difficult subject? And if we can admit that this is a difficult subject, 
Can we then learn to show grace to each other? You know, Thomas Campbell, he had this fella that was going to be disfellowshipped for universalism. And he said that he would rather cut off his right arm <laughs> than cut off his brother, brother from the body of Christ and fellowship with the other believers. If you want to read that quote, you can go get it. Uh, my, my website, uh, danielr.net, just click on resources up there. It'll take you to my Gumroad account and then download the paper in Opinions Liberty. And I uh, document some of what they were willing to tolerate within the Stone Campbell movement. And so, yeah, so I don't think that we have to divide over this stuff. Awesome. There's awesome people out there. Great people who believe in Jesus, do a lot of good in the world, that just so happen to believe in eternal conscious torment. There's awesome people out there, great people who happen to believe in conditional immortality. And the same thing can be said about people who believe in universalism. So there's no, I don't think there's any reason for us to disassociate from one another because of our varying views on what happens in the afterlife, because at the end of the day, who knows? Here's what I think. First John tells us that God is love. God is not a, just a God of love. No, but God is love. That if there was one defining characteristic of God, that you, if you just had to pick something out to describe what God is like, then the answer to that is God is love. By the way, if you want to hear more about this subject, uh, I'm going to be preaching a sermon this Sunday called God is Like Jesus. I think you might like it. It's pretty fun. Okay, so God is love. That means whatever God ends up doing in the afterlife, it will be an act of love. Whatever, whatever it looks like, whatever solution you know, to this problem happens to be the right one. That's going to be an act of love, and I'm totally okay with that. See, personally, personally, I don't buy eternal conscious torment for a second. I just, I just don't see how that could be true. When I look at Jesus, and I look at his life, I look at the compassion that he showed, I look at what he says about wrath and mercy and justice, I just don't see how eternal conscious torment could be true. I don't see how Jesus' daddy could torture someone in hell for an eternity. Like, forever and ever and ever. Bill Cosby said uh, that his mama told him, I used to listen to comedy tapes before I'd go to sleep at night. I had a tape of Bill Cosby. I had a tape of uh, Jerry Clower. I also had a tape of Jim Croce, which is a you know musician. And I had a tape of Jeff Foxworthy. Anyways, I just played these comedy tapes before bed, and there was this one that uh, Bill Cosby was talking about his mom. He, she said, and then your hair will be burning, and your eyes will be burning, and your skin will be burning, and your fingernails will be burning. And if, you know, once you've spent a million years there, you'll realize it hasn't even been a second, <laughs> you know. So I don't think that's true at all. I just don't think that's, that's what God is like. We can talk about that if you'd like. But I'm just setting you up, okay? Um, so I changed my mind on eternal conscious torment probably back in like 2015, 2016 when I was doing all my eschatology craziness. I'm still doing eschatology craziness, but I was doing it back then. That's when I started it back then. I got, got away from this eternal conscious torment thing. Just, I, just couldn't, I just couldn't see it, okay? Um, the other thing, though, is uh, conditional immortality. Conditional immortality is the idea of annihilationism that God destroys both body and soul in Gehenna. That is, that a unrighteous person will either be uh, DOA, you know, dead on arrival. <laughs> as soon as he's dead, he's dead. Or he will die, he will receive some sort of punishment, and then he'll be annihilated. That's what I believe for a little bit, because it was more bearable than eternal conscious torment. But I got problems with that too. I mean... You know, like you punish your kid and then you just kill him. <laughs> like, come on, boy, come back, come up and come back in the corner. Go sit in the corner for time out, and when you're done, I'm going to kill you. That'll teach you a lesson. Like, what's the point of that? It's almost like just to, oh goodness, what do you even say? It's, it's almost like he's just getting off on killing the guy or on punishing the guy before he kills him. I don't know. I just don't. That doesn't that doesn't make any sense to me either. Okay, 
Then, of course, you also have universalism. Universalism saying that everybody everywhere uh, will be eventually saved or is already saved. And to be honest with you, I can't 100% justify that position in my mind either. I'm somewhere between conditional immortality and universalism. I'm somewhere in between there. Uh, I don't know what you would even call that, but that's where I sit. (laughs) And the reason why I sit in between there, and I I hope, goodness, I hope that universalism is true. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. Uh, that if you had to ask me what my, what I, I wish was the correct answer, I hope it's universalism. And the reason why I hope it's universalism is because I think that's what God's desire is. First uh, John chapter 2, or sorry, what am I saying? I'm thinking of another passage. Uh, the passage I was thinking of was, He is a sin atonement, not for, our, not for only our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. First John chapter 2, verse 2. No, but I was actually thinking of First Timothy 2 which says that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so if that's what God desires, then that's what I desire as well. Second Peter 3, of course, says that God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The problem that I have is with the next passage. He says, but, you know, the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. So I want all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is what I desire because I love my enemies, Matthew chapter 5. The problem, though, is is it's so very obvious that at this point in time, not everyone has come to the knowledge of the truth. People are still killing each other, stealing from each other, lying to each other, cheating on each other, disrespecting each other, being intolerant towards each other. Injustices go unpunished. Rights, or rather wrongs, are not, we don't see them righted. <laughs> so, is, that, is that a word? So, so I want all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, but it is so blatantly obvious that as it stands right now, that's just not reality. This is not reality. So what do you do? You say, well, Daniel, these people will have a chance to respond to Jesus after death. That sounds awesome. That sounds awesome. The, the only problem is is uh, I can't prove that. Now, I can, I can point to passages that seem to talk about that, but I, I just can't prove it, you know? Like, what about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison? 1 Peter 3. What about the gospel being preached to those that are dead? 1 Peter chapter 4. I've, I've written some stuff on that before, arguing against this idea, but yeah, I'm just throwing that out there. What about uh, Revelation 21? As I mentioned before, the gates will never be shut. I mean, that's some, that's some good stuff. But I, I have a hard time with that, right? That's what I want to be true. But I, I have a hard time with it. And so I'm okay with sitting in the middle. I'm okay with having a non-answer. Um, there, there's two books that have been super helpful to me on, on this subject of the afterlife. Um, I've, I've read several books on it. I've, I've read uh, you know, The Fire That Consumes by Edward Fudge. I've read... Unspoken Sermons by George MacDonald. He has a great ooh, a great chapter in there on justice. If you can get that, I, I've I've shared it before on my blog. Unspoken Sermons by George MacDonald. The one on justice is really, really good. It makes you think. I've read Um I've read The Last Word and the Word After That by Brian McLaren. That's a pretty good book. If you if you're into novels, that's a pretty good book on uh, the afterlife. I found it super helpful. I think you'd appreciate it too. In fact, this whole series, A New Kind of Christian, The Story We Find Ourselves In, The Last Word and The Word After That, those were all helpful to me. But he had some good stuff to say about the afterlife. I've read some other stuff uh, too here and there on eternal conscious torment versus universalism versus annihilation. Um, But the two books that have been most helpful to me, the Bible. Okay, yes, the Bible. Uh, Actually, the Bible is what has got me into my predicament. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because uh, because of the diversity within it. Not the contradictions within it, mind you, but the diversity. And the diversity may not be a problem on the part of the writers. The diversity is a problem on the part of Daniel. And that's why I like what Jesus said. You search the scriptures because in them you think that they ha- you think that you have life, yet they are they which testify of me. So at the end of the day, I'm going to put my trust in Jesus and not in any searching of the scriptures on my own part. So that's... Uh, that's what I'm going to aspire to do. Hope that's what you'll do as well. 
But the two books that have been most helpful to me, uh, one is The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. That's a fantastic book. And that probably gets the closest to what I think about the afterlife. And it leaves you with questions, obviously. Uh, the book does. It doesn't give you all the answers, but it's, it's a really, really good book. The Great Divorce. You should read that. And I think that you'll see what some of my dilemmas are in being able to say that I embrace any one of these positions uh, when you read that book. The other book is a controversial book, but we are, we are all controversial people by nature, so there you go. Uh, I heard one guy, he said, uh, I was studying 1 Corinthians 11 with him, and I got to that passage. He was trying to say women need to wear head coverings or whatever, and I got to the passage that says, but of the churches of God, if anyone seems to be contentious of the churches of God, we have no such custom. And I'm like, so what about that? He says, oh, it's not our custom to be contentious. And I just started laughing because uh, having been in the Church of Christ at that point for 18 or 19 years, I knew that we were very good at being cont <laughs> contentious. <laughs> but maybe he was talking about the Church of God there and not the Church of Christ. Okay, anyways. Um, the other book is uh, Love Wins by Rob Bell. Now, R Rob, he got a lot of flack for this book. Some people wrote books about his book. Some people have preached some pretty nasty sermons about his book. Um, somebody put a article on my desk about this book well they didn't put it on my desk they stuck it in a book I don't whatever um, they and it was critiquing this book but really you know he doesn't he doesn't really give you any answers in that book either he's just giving you questions he's just basically saying these are some things uh, that I personally have struggled with and who couldn't appreciate that because which which of us haven't struggled with this passage now there's probably somebody out there thinking okay yeah well you know I have the answers. I've, I've studied all these passages. I've read my Bible. I know that Jesus is going to punish people in hell literally for an eternity, forever and ever and ever with no end. Yeah, good for you. I, I just can't do it. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't been able to find that same sense of certainty when it comes to this subject. So, after spending 17 minutes telling you that I don't know the answer, now I'm going to walk you through <laughs> some things that I've found to be helpful. All right, let's start with let's start with the rich man and Lazarus, Luke chapter sixteen, because isn't that what we're all really here for? Uh, we're, we're now you can't see it, but I've got a marker board and I'm going to draw a big circle on it, and you just best believe that that circle is going to have a two lines straight down the middle, kind of like a pokeball, <laughs> and then on one side I'm going to write uh, torment, on the other side I'm going to write Abraham's bosom. And everybody's going to be wondering what a bosom is. And then I'm going to talk about the Great Gulf. Uh, so, anyways, Luke 16, 19, which I always thought the Great Gulf sounded pretty fun. Because I grew up going to the Gulf of Mexico uh, to swim down here in South Alabama. Uh, but it turns out that the Great Gulf is actually not all that cool. Okay, so let's talk about Luke 16. First of all, you can't talk about Luke 16 in isolation. And th this is just one thing that really bugs me nowadays is, and everybody does it, and I do it, of course, is just looking at these passages in total isolation from the rest of the book. All right, so, so first off, the book of Luke and the book of Acts are a unit, and they're both talking about the restoration of Israel. Now, I know that you've probably never heard that before, uh, because I hadn't heard that before until, you know, some years ago. But yeah, the book of Luke and the book of Acts are all about the restoration of Israel. Let me just kind of take you through it real quick. In Luke chapter 1, uh, they're looking forward to the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. And all through Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, all through them, it says that he's going to be for the rise and fall of many in Israel. He's going to redeem Israel. Uh, the prophetess Anna, she was looking for the, the restoration of Israel. You just, just read through Luke chapter 1 and 2 and notice how many times he talks about Jesus is coming to fulfill the promises made to the fathers concerning Israel. It's just all over the place. So first, the book of Luke and Acts are about the restoration of Israel. Even Acts is. Acts chapter 1, he talks about uh, the disciples ask, is that at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And then he, Paul ends the book in chapters 24 through 28, talking about the restoration of Israel. In Acts 24, 14, and 15, he says, I'm not saying any other thing other than what Moses and the prophets said should come. 
In Acts 26, he talks about how he's, he's, just, he's just talking about the promises made to the fathers, the promises made to Israel. And then in Acts 28, he says, for the hope of Israel, I'm, I find myself in these chains. So we have to understand Luke and Acts within the context of Israel's uh, salvation story. Now, now that we have that, now that we have that, we can look at one of Jesus' first uh, sermons in this book. We're going to look at Luke chapter 6. You know, this is, uh, yeah, Luke, Luke chapter 6. This is kind of like the Sermon on the Mount in Luke's, Luke's, Luke's version, right? So he looks at his disciples in verse 20, and he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Now, you're probably reading that and going, well, don't you mean blessed are the poor in spirit? Okay, yeah, in Matthew's gospel account, it says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. But in Luke's account, it's about finances. He, he had already said something like this before in Luke chapter 4. He talked about... Uh, Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So all that there um, is a citation of Isaiah, but it's going back to a further tradition uh, in the book of Leviticus about the year of Jubilee, where debts were forgiven, where people could return to the land that was sold, things like that. So the book of Luke does have a strong emphasis on finances. People want to avoid this, but that's just the reality of the situation. In uh, Luke chapter 1, even, with Mary, listen to Mary's song here. Uh, she talks about how God has looked on her with favor, how the Mighty One has done great things, right? He shows mercy to people from generation to generation. He says, in, She says in verse 52, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. So there's a strong emphasis on the rich being sent away empty and the poor being blessed and filled with good things. And people in Western culture cannot stand this because we say things like, well, we're rich, but you know, we've been told by preachers for years that if you have two pairs of shoes, you're richer than whatever, 99% of the world. Yeah, and so, you know, we, we these passages offend us a little bit. But let's let's think back to what being rich during this time meant. Okay, you're under Roman oppression. The only way that you're going to get rich is if you get in bed with Rome. You know what I mean? So, like, uh, like Pharaoh, remember, he had Israel build storage houses. Why? So that he could survive during a time of famine. But you build up storage houses, which means that you're profiting off of the the work of others, of the slaves that you're having build those houses. And then you're doubly profiting off of them because they have to come back to you to buy the grain from the storage houses that they just spent all those years in slavery and captivity building. And so if you're rich in this kind of culture, it means that you've done something wrong. It means that you've, you've had to lie, you've had to cheat, you've had to steal, you've, you've taken money that wasn't yours, you've taken advantage of other human beings. And so, of course, of course... Jesus says it is more difficult for a rich man to enter into the through a, uh, to the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to enter into the eye of a needle. And we get offended by this in our culture today because by compared to them, we're all rich, you know, to some extent. And so we wonder, how could this be? But remember, that's because in their culture, to get rich, you had to lie, cheat, and steal. You had to do something to, to hurt somebody, to to cause someone else to become grow, to grow poor before you could be made rich. So, of course, the book of Luke is going to talk about this. The book of Leviticus handles all this as well. And I'm going to be teaching a class on Leviticus uh, at our congregation on Sunday mornings at 930 at the end of this month, the last, the last Sunday of this month. And I'm, I'm going to be posting all my uh, handouts and stuff online for you guys to read. So you'll be able to get all that. But anyways, let's just not avoid this subject. <laughs> uh, he, he does... He does say in Luke chapter 6, getting back to it, Woe to you who are rich, you for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all, when all speak well of you. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. See how challenging this is? This is what the book of Luke talks about 
all over from beginning to end. All right, so now let's go uh, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is, of course, the story of the prodigal son. You also have the story of the uh, lady with the coins and also the dude with the sheep. So in Luke 15 and verse 1, he says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's the context of Luke 15 and 16. The Pharisees, those who are some of those who were rich, uh, were those who had gotten rich by taking advantage of other of other people, of other human beings, of other Israelites. If you hear a dog barking in the background, that's Maverick. He's our church security guard. He's also uh, is our secretary, and he's barking at the ladies who are coming in to clean. Okay, so Luke chapter 15, he goes through these two stories, one of the lost sheep, one of the lost coin, one of the prodigal and his brother, and then you come to chapter 16. All right, chapter 16 is a continuation of chapter 15. Jesus says to his disciples in chapter 16, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. And so he summons him, and that's the parable of the unjust steward. You've probably heard this before. Okay, let's keep going down to verse 14. So when the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of this, they're hearing all this discussion about welcoming sinners, about God giving people another, you know, another chance, about the dishonest manager at the first part of chapter 16. Jesus says, you cannot serve God and wealth in Luke 16 and verse 13. Then, verse 14 says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, which, by the way, is the root of all evil, they heard all this, they ridiculed him. So he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts, for what is prized by humans is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is being proclaimed, and everyone tries to enter it by force. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter and the law to be dropped. Anyone, then he goes on and he says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery, which seems pretty random. And if you think that was a pretty random statement, then you would be right, because that is uh, <laughs> what everybody who comments on this passage says. <laughs> okay, then we have this, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. Do you see then that the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the parable, the account, whatever you want to call it, does it really matter? Um, it's not a parable because he mentions Lazarus' name. Okay, whatever. Uh, it's in the context of Jesus saying, you cannot serve God and wealth, and then the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, ridiculing him for that. So if you ever hear, if you ever hear someone say, you cannot serve God and wealth, and then someone ridicules them, it's probably a good idea to show them this parable because <laughs> this is the kind of path that they're heading down, right? Okay, now when we read in verse 19 that there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day, we have to keep in mind what, you know, earlier parts in the book of Luke. So, for example, Luke chapter 14. Let's go back and take a look at this. This is going to be uh, verse 7 and following in Luke 14. But while we're going back there, I want you to think about, once more, the connection to Luke and Acts with the restoration of Israel. Remember that Israel was supposed to be a beacon of hope to the nations. The poor and the, and the widows and the foreigners could go into her territory and could uh, you know, pick things from their, from their gardens and from their fields, from the corners and from what was left over. Right, they had a they had a charge by God to take care of the widows and the orphans in their affliction. All right, this this was their responsibility to fulfill, and because they failed in that, they they didn't keep the land Sabbath for four hundred and ninety years, which which was a time when they just let everything grow naturally, and then anybody can eat anything that they want to or collect anything that they want to, because this was uh it was basically saying this is God's land anyways, so why are we you know even dividing it up and keeping it to ourselves and not sharing it with each other. And so they, 
Uh, they let everything grow up naturally, and they just feast off the land. But they didn't, they didn't keep that for like 490 years. And that's one of the reasons why they had to go into captivity. You look at the end of Second Chronicles. So anyways, this was, this was their uh, directive, and yet they failed. So that's, again, the context of what we're talking about here. Israel failing to take care of the poor and the widows and their affliction. So Luke chapter 14 and verse 7 says, When Jesus noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, so they would sit around the table, and you would, yeah, you got the guy at the head of the table, and then they would all pick where they sit. Isn't it? Oh, what, what show was that? Did Downton Abbey do that? I'm pretty sure the Peaky Blinders. <laughs> you got any, got any Peaky Blinder fans? Tommy Shelby, Arthur Shelby. You know, they had like, you know, oh, now you can come sit at the table, Finn. You know, it's like a, a special honor to be able to go and to sit and to, you know, uh, be at the table with the big boys. See, I prefer to sit at the table with the kids. Like if I go to Thanksgiving or Christmas with the family or whatever, I'm going to be at the kids' table if I, if I can help it because that's the most fun. That's the, they go out and play football. See, the adults, they sit around and talk about politics or whatever garbage, but I can go out and play football. Which one am I going to do? I'm playing tag football all day. So anyways, the choosing places of honor at the table, that's boring. I want to go play tag or go play hide-and-seek or something or go wander around the you know, neighborhood. Okay, so he noticed that the guests choose places of honor, and he says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host, and the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place, and then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers and sisters or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return, and you would be repaid, and you will be but when you give a banquet, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. How cool is that? Now, what he's saying here, this is this is a theme that goes back to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter twenty-five, <clears throat> that in the new heavens and new earth, in the in the resurrection, in the kingdom of God, there is a banquet for all to participate in. From anyone all over the world, they can come and join this banquet. It's called the Messianic Banquet. You can read Isaiah 25 to see that. You can look at Matthew chapter 22 for more information on it. Oh, wait, Matthew 22? Yeah, the wedding feast of the Son of God, yes. You can look at Revelation uh, 19. Um, you, there's a passage in Revelation 2 and 3 which talks about uh, Jesus knocking at the door to come in and to sup with him, to dine with him. This is all based on this theme of the Messianic banquet. In uh, Matthew chapter 8, for example, there's a Gentile there who expresses great faith. And Jesus says, I've not seen great faith, no, not in Israel. And he says, truly I say to you, many will come from the east and from the west and will sit at the table in the kingdom of God with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's a really cool picture there in Matthew 8. He does say that the children of the kingdom would be cast out, of course, into outer darkness. So this theme of a banquet at the time of the resurrection permeates prophecy, both Old Testament and New Testament. In fact, the Lord's Supper, uh, the Passover meal, and then eventually the Lord, which would eventually become the Lord's Supper, uh, like in Luke's account, for example, he just straight up mentions this. Uh, my goodness, we're chasing some rabbits, aren't we? But this is good stuff. I can't help it. Uh, in Luke chapter 22, uh, Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, and he says, the son, whoop, 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 whoop. where did it go? Oh yeah, here we go. Verse 18. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Uh, one passage says back in verse 16, I will not eat of it till it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The, the messianic banquet is typified in the Lord's Supper. Okay. Back to it. So he talks about a, a banquet at the resurrection of the righteous. And that's why, in verse 15 of Luke 14, one of the dinner guests says, Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus <laughs> says back to him, Someone gave a great dinner and invited many. 
At the time for the dinner, he chose, uh, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all like began to make excuses. You probably heard of this before. Someone bought a piece of land. They have to see it. Someone bought an ox and he needs to go test it. Someone has just been married. And so he can't come. So then the slave comes back and reports everything to the master. And then the master says, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, sir, what you've ordered has been done. There is still room. The master said to the slave, go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who are invited will taste my dinner. So this is, again, the contrast between the rich and the poor. Those who had every opportunity, they didn't come enjoy the dinner. And so it was the, the attention was then directed to the others, right? The religious elite of Jesus' day. They had every opportunity to learn and to study the scriptures and to search the scriptures and to come to a knowledge of who Jesus is. And yet they refused to do it. And so Jesus turns his attention to the poor, to the lame, to the crippled, to the blind. And it's making a point about the character of God. And that's why studies of, after, of the afterlife matter is because they're ultimately studies about the character of God and who God is. So in, so in Luke 16, okay, let's, let's bring it back. So in Luke 16 and verse 19, when he says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. We just read two chapters before that we should pay attention who is at the feast and who's not at the feast and who is missing from the feast are the poor, the lame, the blind, the crippled, which means that the rich man, as Jesus said back in Luke chapter 14 uh, and verse, oh, where did it go? Uh, verse 12 He's already being repaid, right? He's already receiving his reward, the fruit of his labor. So I want you, I wanted that to be in the back of your mind because it's really cool. Uh, the other thing is, I want you, the other passage I want you to keep in mind is that one from Matthew 8 that I mentioned. Uh, don't, don't let that slip. You might have thought that that was just a side note, but, it, but it's not. It's important. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, whenever Jesus says, I'll give you the particular passage here. Um, let's see. Verse 11. I will tell you, many will come from the east and west and will take their places at the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's an important part there to remember. So, at his gate, at the rich man's gate, there's a poor man named Lazarus. He's not even out in the highways and the hedges. He's just right there, right in front of him, who's covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. So, these guys are messy eaters, and he sees that, and he's like, man, I just want to get some of the scraps they're dropping all over the floor. <laughs> that, that, that'd satisfy me. Even the dogs, he says, would come and would lick his sores. The poor man died, was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far away with, notice, notice, with Lazarus by his side. By his side, where? By his side at the table in the Messianic banquet. He was hungry before. Now he's sitting at the table with Abraham. Now he's given, notice, notice, now he's given a place of honor. <laughs> hey, how about that? You remember in Luke 14, he said, if you go sit at a place of honor, then a more distinguished guest comes in, they're going to boot you out and then you're going to be disgraced. But if you sit at the lower place, and then when the, the master of the house comes in, he's like, whoa, what are you doing there, buddy? Come sit by me, you know? And then you're like, whoa, look at them. He's, now he's been honored. Does that sound familiar to you? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. All right, we're, we're going somewhere. Just stick with me. Hope you're having fun. So now he's been given the place of honor right next to Abraham. Boom, there's Abraham, there's Lazarus right there. And that's the theme of Luke. The rich are sent away empty. The poor are filled with good things. Because to be rich in this society means that you had to cheat over somebody somewhere and you weren't fulfilling your obligations to the law and taking care of the poor and the needy like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all these other books did. You're not taking care of the poor and the needy like God did in bringing the people out of Egypt. Okay. My goodness, this is fun. Okay, so he sees Abraham far away. He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. Notice the rich man's attitude. Send Lazarus to put his finger in water 
and to come in over here where I'm at, where it's terrible, and cool my tongue. Now, this man wasn't even willing to give Lazarus the scraps from his own table. And he wants Lazarus to come out of his, come away from his banquet, come away from his place of honor, go all the way down into these flames, apparently, and put some water on his tongue to serve him water. What's going on with this guy? Okay, so Abraham says, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great gulf has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. You kind of have to put that in place, don't you? Otherwise, the people beside Abraham's side would be rushing to get down there to pull the, <laughs> to go get their relatives. <laughs> you know what I mean? He said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. So again, he's like, Send him over here. Send him over here. Boss him around. He has just, he's just completely missing the point. Isn't he? He's completely missing the point. Okay, let's look at Abraham's response, and then we'll draw our conclusion here to this part. Then we'll go to part B. Um, So Abraham says in verse 29, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. Ooh. (laughs) What should they listen to? What should they listen to? Take care of those who are poor and need. Take care of those who are hungry. Tend to the crippled. Visit those in prison. Proclaim liberty to the captives. The rich man did not listen to that, and neither would his brothers. That is sad. Then he says, Father Abraham, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And see, that right there is Jesus' jab at the the rich man there, at the Pharisees who love money. That's That's what this whole parable is about. This whole parable is, you guys aren't getting it. You guys have failed to take care of the least of these. Right? And they're going to have some consequences for that. All right? But here's my point about the afterlife. Let's get let's get back to it. What is Jesus's emphasis in these passages? Luke 14, Luke 16. Is it on the afterlife or is his emphasis on what we could be doing right here? See the the reason why the rich man goes into a place of torment is because he ignored the suffering the the evil the, the, the torment that was on earth around him at his very gate. He walked by the guy every single day, feasting, wearing purple, not even willing to share his scraps. Through ignoring the torment that was going on around him, he himself was being tormented. One of the authors I like to read, Wendell Berry, he's really good. He's got a book called The Need to Be Whole. Uh, and if you if you are from an area that is dealt with the Confederate monument stuff. Um, his book, The Need to Be Whole, is really, really good. Uh, you should read it anyways, even if you're not dealing with Confederate monuments. But it's it's really good. You should consider reading that book. Um, but he talks about in the book how racism negatively affects, obviously, the object of that intolerance. So, you know, in this case, African Americans. But at the same time, the negative effects on the racist may be even greater and more dire on the one who is racist. Because in their, in their instance, they're not following Jesus, and they're not mirroring what, what uh, Jesus' desires and hopes and dreams are. And so in doing that, they're not just hurting someone else, uh, but they are inflicting a great deal of pain upon themselves that you know has, has far larger consequences in the temporal consequences of their racism now that's not to belittle for one second uh what african americans have gone through in our country and you know just across the world but what i'm the point is is that this is what jesus is getting at yes lazarus had 
temporary discomfort and and that led to his death but the joy and the glory that he experienced at the messianic banquet was far greater than any temporary pain that was inflicted upon him through the negligence of the rich man while he was on earth whereas the joys and the comfort of the rich man while he was on earth is nothing to be compared with the torment that he experienced in this in the parable here um, after he goes into Hades. All right. So the point is, is we should be less concerned, in my opinion, about this discussion about the afterlife and more concerned with bringing heaven to earth now. Going to find those people in our life who are Lazaruses and giving them food and comforting them and clothing them and trying to help heal them Instead of, like the rich man, going on and on and on in our comfort, in our luxury, thinking that we're safe because we have been born into the right culture, into the right family, into the right church, and we'll be okay because we believe the right things without ever doing the right things. To See, see to me, that is far more interesting and compelling than a debate about the afterlife. Now, let's talk about some of this uh, that's going on here. And I'm indebted to uh, to Rob Bell for this point here. But why couldn't the rich man cross from one side to the other? Why couldn't he? You say, well, there's a great gulf. Yes, that's true. What is the great gulf? Do you see he has the same attitude, even in torment, that he did before he ever even went there? <laughs> Send Lazarus here to serve me. Make Lazarus leave his comfort to come into this place of torment to give me a drop of water. Like, is that even worth it? And how cruel is that to Lazarus, you know? The great gulf here is his heart. Maybe not literally, in the the sense that uh, this is the exact point that Jesus was making, but it seems to be what it is in my mind. It is impossible for him to cross over into this place of comfort because his attitude hasn't even changed from from the time that he died. And this is what the great divorce is about, by the way. These people are given every opportunity to go into the the heaven place in the story and despite trying to they find it impossible to cross because they they become so concerned with the things back where they were where, you know where they were before or the grudges that they had or you know whatever so it's impossible for the rich man to cross over he hasn't even been changed or transformed by his afterlife experience so to speak but I want to show you another passage um one that I think complements this also a parable this is in Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to do this very quickly. We're not going to give this to Luke 16 treatment. All right? So Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable about forgiveness. And uh, there's a guy who owns like $4 billion. It's like 10,000 talents. And he is forgiven of that equal. I mean, it's on the spot. So, for example, here we go. Uh, Matthew 18, 23. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. By the way, 10,000 talents is the price of genocide. Uh, you go back and you look at Esther. That's what was going to get paid out to exterminate the Jews in, uh, in Esther. So if you want to you know, have a question like, could somebody be forgiven of genocide? Well, here it is in Matthew 18, 10,000 talents erased. An unbelievable debt gone. So... Uh, he owed him 10,000 talents he's brought to him and as he could not pay obviously like that's everybody people would be laughing at this point as he could not pay the Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made so the slave fell on his knees before him saying have patience with me and I will pay you everything and out of pity for him the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt so at a time of judgment the slave goes forward, he's going to be punished, but then he asks for forgiveness, and he says, okay, you're forgiven. The, del- the debt is gone. But that same guy, verse 28, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii, which is like a hundred days wages, seized him by the throat, and he said, pay me what you owe. This fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. Same words, same line. Same excuse. But he refused 
He threw him in the prison until he would pay the debt. When the fellow slaves saw what happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to the lords all that had taken place. Then his lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have mercy on your fellow slave as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Tortured until they pay the debt. Now, wait a minute, though. I have a question for you. Why didn't the first guy fall down and plead a second time? See, the first time, he didn't forgive. He didn't forgive from his heart. You see? He didn't forgive from his heart. And so he wasn't able to extend that forgiveness to somebody else. And so he didn't even think, he didn't even think it was possible to ask for forgiveness the second time. What would have happened? What if, what if it dawned on him and he falls down? Please don't do this. I will forgive that man. I'm so sorry. You know, for, please forgive me what, I, what I owe. The king has already demonstrated he's willing to forgive just about anything, right? <laughs> I mean, he's willing to forgive 10,000 talents. That's crazy. That's, that's more wealth than anybody on this podcast has ever even you know, seen or experienced. All of us combined, probably. He's a forgiving guy. Do you think he would forgive him the second time? I, I tend to think that he would. And yet he doesn't even think to ask. Why? Because he doesn't grasp forgiveness. He doesn't grasp forgiveness. Now, if God is a God who forgives of 10,000 talents when the time of reckoning comes, and that's what the kingdom of God is like, then what happens when someone dies and God says, ooh, you missed it. The correct answer was Mormon. You know? <laughs> or whatever, you know. What, what, what would happen? If the person fell down before God and said, oh, please forgive me of my debt. Please have mercy on me. I, I didn't know. I, I never heard the name Jesus. Or, you know, the, 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 the way that I heard about Jesus was so corrupt. It's nothing like what, what I see now face to face. What would God's reaction be? I can't tell you what his reaction would be. But I happen to think that it would be something like this. Now, what if someone... What if someone was trying to do that as like a get-out-of-jail-free card? Then what would the reaction be? Again, I don't know. I, I, I just don't know. That, that's, that's the trouble with talking about the afterlife is that I just don't know a lot of this. Okay, we're coming to the end here, and there is a lot more to talk about. So we're going to do another one of these. Um, we got a long ways to go. I'm going to talk about fire. I want to talk about hell. I want to talk about uh, some of the other what-about passages. I want to talk a little bit more about... Uh, conditional immortality, but we'll do that next week. So this is this is just a taste. We'll get into this even in more detail and, and, and uh, whenever the next time I'm doing one of these is. Two weeks from now, I think. Anyways, hope you all have a great day. Thanks for joining me today. Be patient with me as I've tried to be patient with others because I don't have the answers. I kind of told you where I sit, so maybe you can be patient with me even there. <laughs> but thanks so much for listening in on this. Um, if you want to read more about my journey and dealing with the afterlife, you can get my book, How a 25-Year-Old Learned He Wasn't the Only One Going to Heaven. Just go to danielr.net, click on resources. You can download a PDF for like seven bucks, or you can go on uh, Amazon and get the paperback for like $11. Anyways, that's about it. Have a great day and God bless.